I'm really excited to be here with you tonight. Uh, Like you saw, we're continuing in our series, Back to Basics, and we have been going through some of the foundational and fundamental things that we struggle with, that we need to know as Christians. And tonight, we're talking about something that I think all of us can relate to. This is going to be one of those messages that you go, you know what, that hit me, I think, because I think we all have this battle with our sin, this struggle with our sin. And The text that we're going to be looking at is Romans chapter 7. And we have to understand that Romans was written by a guy who totally understood the struggle with sin. He was a black and white kind of guy. So you saw this man who was living completely unrighteously, killing Christians, totally sold out for the wrong things. And then a transformation, a flip of the the switch of holiness. This man pursuing righteousness, pursuing godliness, building God's church instead of tearing it down. And so Paul is the perfect person to look to for advice when we're facing this struggle with our sin. Because Paul understood that just because he became a Christian, just because he started selling out for God, his life did not become easier. His struggle with sin didn't just go away, it was still there. And so chapter 7 of Romans is a chapter that's all about struggle. But it's beautiful because chapter 8 is all about grace and love and mercy. So it's important for us to understand that tonight when we look at chapter 7, that that's just a piece of how we overcome sin. Chapter 8 is all about grace and love. It's the flip side. It's the next step. Um, we're going to be reading through verses 14 through 25, and I just want to start by reading this through the message version. I'm going to be referencing NIV versions throughout the night, but I think the message version puts it in a really tangible and easy way for us to understand. So you can read along with me on the screen. It says, I can anticipate the response that's coming. I know that all God's commands are spiritual, but I am not. Isn't this also your experience? Yes, I'm full of myself after all. I've spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what's best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more. For if I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize I don't have what it takes. I can will will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. Sound familiar? My decisions, such as they are, don't result and actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I tried everything and nothing helps. I am at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all of my heart and mind, but am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. The solution is life 
on God's terms. Would you guys pray with me? God, as we continue to go through Romans 7, would you just reveal to us um, this idea of struggle with sin, but the fact that you've overcome sin, you've overcome death, and we have an answer. We have an answer to this sin struggle. God, would you strengthen us and equip us with this message and allow us to leave this place ready to fight the war within ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I think reading through that text, there are three really quick observations that we can get from that. Uh, The first one is that Romans 7 is a great passage for us because it grips us, because that's a passage when you're reading it, you're going the whole time, yep, that's me, yep, that's me, I feel that, yeah, that's me. The second thing about the text is that Romans 7 is telling about the way the Christian life actually is. See, Paul's not writing about his past experience before he was a Christian. And and Paul's not writing about uh, an immature, carnal Christian's lifestyle. But in my opinion, Romans 7 is about a mature Christian's walk every single day. It was the things that he was experiencing. So often in the text, Paul was saying, I, I, I. It It was almost as if this chapter was his spiritual autobiography. It was all about his life and the experiences that he went to. And the last observation is probably that the hardest thing to swallow when we read this chapter, and that is there is no real ex- escape from chapter 7. There's no real escape from chapter 7. I think Paul wants us to understand that in order to get to chapter 8, to get to the grace, to get to the, the love and the mercy, that we have to accept chapter 7. We have to come to terms with it, understand it, why we struggle with this sin issue. So seven is not the whole story, and it's important that we understand that, because this text does not stand in isolation. Uh, I was thinking about this message this weekend, and I thought back to a time when I was at my grandparents' house, and I used to go over there all the time when I was a kid, and they were the kind of people that actually read the newspaper. Um, I don't know if anybody still does that, but um, they always read the newspaper, always had one, and I I would always take one and immediately go to the comics section. And I remember one time a cartoon strip. Does anybody remember the cartoon strip Pogo? pretty old. But anyways, they said a line from this cartoon strip, and it was a really, really powerful line. I think it speaks truth into this scripture. And the hero comes onto the scene, and he says, we have met the enemy, and he is us. We have met the enemy, and he is us. See, I think that that's exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying, we've met the enemy. It's the man standing looking back at me when I look in the mirror. You see, Paul understands the enemy is not just out there somewhere, but the enemy is on the inside. He's infiltrated us. He's inside of us, our very being, which is why the people, when they clap and cheer and applaud for your great performance, there's something on the inside that says, wait a minute, if you knew this dark corner of my heart, if you knew this this war, this struggle inside of me, you wouldn't be clapping for me. You wouldn't be excited or, or proud. And that's what Paul is saying here. And so the ultimate question that this boils down to is, why is this a struggle for every believer? Why do we have this battle inside of us? And the answer is very simple. It's two words, and that is indwelling sin. Indwelling sin. Paul says it two times in the text. In verse 17, he says, As it is, it is no longer I myself doing it, but it's the sin living in me. Sin living in me. He uses the exact same phrase in verse 20. He says, Sin living in me. See, sin dwells inside the life of every believer. Paul says that sin is actually present in the members of his body. And he says, whenever he wants to do good, evil is right there with me. So a reality that we have to come to terms with is as long as we are a follower of Christ, as long as we are in this mortal body, we are going to have this struggle with sin. 
So often I think people come into the church and they think that Jesus is going to save them and he's going to free them and they're never ever going to have to deal with that sin struggle again. But the reality is it is a war every single day, 24 hours of the day, seven days a week, 52 weeks of the year. It is constant all the time. In verse 24, I love this, Paul cries out in desperation. He says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will rescue me from this body of death? Have you ever thought about the fact that sin is the reason that your body grows old? The next time you look in the mirror and you you see those wrinkles, you can curse Satan. Praise God that there won't be love handles in heaven, amen? That's what I'm saying. You see, sin is the reason your body decays. It's the reason your body dies. And so there's this sin principle that's working inside your body. In this passage, Paul lays bare the struggle between the liberated mind that knows Jesus Christ and the body, the body of sin, the flesh that is decaying. And he shows us that it is a conflict, consistently, a war in each of us. And it will always be there. But there are three different times in this um, passage where Paul confesses his sin struggle. Three different instances. And I think each one of us reveal a different aspect of the struggle that we face as believers. And so tonight I want to go through each one of those, uh, kind of take part some of these verses. The first one is this. We have a struggle to live up to what we know we ought to be. There's a struggle to live up to what we know we ought to be. I want to read again verse 15 through 17. It says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, I do it. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin living in me. See, Paul says in verse 15, I don't understand what I do. And I love this passage of scripture. Um, when I was prepping for this, I kind of smiled on the inside. Because when I was a kid, anytime I would throw a golf ball at my dad's truck and see him get more angry than I've ever seen in my life, or uh, any time that I would lie about something really stupid like tearing down the wallpaper in the bathroom, um, any time that I would do something really, really dumb and my parents would look at me and say, Blake, why did you do that? I don't know. That's a biblical concept, guys. Paul says, I don't know why I do the things that I do. And I think that we can all relate to what Paul is saying because there's been so many times in our life where people have said, why did you do that? I don't know. Why did you say that? I don't know. Why did you sign that lease? Why did you get involved in that relationship? Why did you lie? Why did you break your promise? And at the end of the day, you have no real reason. You're stuck looking at them saying, you know what? There must have been something in me that moved me to not do or do something, but I don't really understand it. And that's the result of our indwelling sin, our indwelling sin. See, what Paul is saying is true for all of us. There are times in our life that we just do stuff that's stupid, and we don't have a real answer for it. We don't have a good answer for it. But the good news is we're in good company because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said, one of the greatest Christians to ever live. He struggled with the same reality that sometimes he just doesn't know why he does the things he does. He says, many times I do things, and afterwards I don't understand why I did them. And then he hits the big confession. He says, For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, that's the stuff I do. See, Paul here is confessing the struggle within his soul. He's saying that he feels like a split personality. Like there's this continual civil war going on in his body. It's kind of like that devil and angel constantly on your shoulder telling you what to do. William Barclay um, wrote a commentary on this passage of scripture. And I loved what he titled his commentary. He titled it, The Human Situation. The Human Situation. And isn't that exactly what it is in its most simple terms? 
This inward struggle with sin is just the human situation. It's the result of us living in a broken and flawed world. You see, we know the good, but we don't do it. We know what's wrong, and we fight against it, and then we do it anyways. We say, I will, and then we don't. We say we won't, and then we do. We make the promise just to break it. We set goals just to leave them unfulfilled. We promise to God on our knees, God, I won't say that, and I won't do this anymore, and then three days later, we're doing those things all over again. It's a struggle every single day. I heard it said one time that Paul must have been a golfer. And think about this. Golfers line up their putt. They know exactly where they want to go. And they aim it and they correct to go up the hill and turn left into the hole. And if you putt anything like me, when you hit it, it veers horribly off to the right. It still goes the wrong direction, no matter the fact that you took the precautions, you did the steps, you did exactly what you were supposed to do systematically, but still when you hit the ball, something completely different happened. So many times that happens in our life, Paul understood this, we, we try to do the right thing. We set up systems and we read our Bible and scripture and we, we listen to godly insight and then still when it comes down to it, we make the wrong decision at the last second because of this battle with sin. And I think that there can be a conclusion drawn from this. And it's this, that knowing and doing are two very different things. See, you can know the right thing and still do the wrong thing. You can know the right thing and still do the wrong thing. And so I think it's important for us tonight as a sidebar to realize that knowledge is not enough to save people. Knowledge is not enough to save you. It's not enough to save me. But there has to be something deeper working within us, something real, relational inside of us. See, even if you're a follower of Christ, you're probably not as good as you think you are. And you're a lot worse than you'd like to admit. See, that's the first struggle. The struggle to live up to what you know you ought to be. The second struggle that Paul talks about in this is the struggle to come to grips with repeated personal failure. How many of you guys in the room like to fail? Just pop up your hand. Yeah, I didn't think so. It's one of the things I hate more than anything is failing. It's my biggest fear growing up. I never wanted to fail. I never wanted to let people down. And so because of that, I never did anything I knew I wasn't good at. If I knew I wasn't good at something, nope, not going to do it. And I remember talking to one of um, the people in my life who was a really godly role model to me. And he said, dude, you have to get over this idea that you have to be perfect. You have to get over this because if you don't, you're going to tear yourself up inside because you will fail. You will let people down. And you'll struggle and have this constant battle with God. And you'll get to a point in your life where you might feel like you don't need him anymore. I started thinking about that, and it's so true. So true. So what he told me to do was to do something that I knew I wasn't good at every week. If you know anything about me, uh, you know something that I'm horrible at is playing basketball. And so I went to transitions a couple weeks on Wednesday night to play basketball, um, to be humiliated, uh, embarrassed, and to learn a lesson that it's okay not to be good at everything. It's okay to fail. It's okay to fail because it's in our failure that we're reminded that there's a God who holds us in our failures. It's in our failures that we're reminded that we're not meant to do life on our own because we can't. Because we're flawed and uncapable. We're flawed and uncapable. See, Paul says it in verse 19. He says, the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. Paul was saying this as an apostle, as a follower of Jesus Christ. So if you're a follower of Christ, you can understand these words. They'll make sense to you. See, basically what he was saying is God developed in their heart a deep and honest and holy hatred of sin. It's been said that the closer you come to God, the less you will sin, and the more of a sinner you'll realize you actually are. And that's so true. It gives you perspective and a reality check 
when God reveals to you sinful nature in your life and things that you struggle with as you draw nearer and nearer to God. See, every week people call me and talk to me about personal failure. And they tell me about their problems. And sometimes they're new Christians, but more often they're not. They're Christians who have been Christians for a really long time. And even more often than that is this is a sin struggle that they've had repetitively. It's something that is ongoing, that is, that is constant. And I've gotten to the point where I've been in church long enough that nothing really surprises me anymore at all. You see, no man ever went wrong betting on the reality of total human depravity. Think about that. No man ever went wrong or broke betting on the reality of total human depravity. So you don't have to convince me of the reality of indwelling sin, not in the lives of believers at this church or in my own personal life, because we see it too much. We hear about it too much, and we experience it too much to argue it. But it's so hard for us as believers to come to grips with what Paul's saying. We try to come up with spiritual formulas that get us out of Romans 7. But I don't see anything like that in the text. What I see is you have to face the reality of Romans 7, or you'll never get to Romans 8. You have to come to grips with repeated personal failure. See, the first step, if you go to any AA meetings or any kind of spiritual healing type things, the first step in any healing process is to admit that you're sick. And that's a basic human concept. You don't go to the doctor unless you're unhealthy, unless there's something wrong with you, unless you're sick. And if you're stubborn, you never go to the doctor, and that's when you end up getting even more sick, maybe even dying. And so only sick people go to the hospital, go to the doctors. You see, the people who are made better by the power of God are the people who are not ashamed to admit the weakness and the failure in their life. That's the second struggle, the struggle to come to grips with repeated personal failure. And the third struggle that Paul talks about in his text is this. It is the struggle to admit the true nature of the war within. The struggle to admit the true nature of the struggle within. Reading verse 21 through 24, it says, So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law to sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? You see, we move to the next level, the intense struggle to own up to the war within. In verse 21, this is what Paul says. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Right there with me. The Greek word for right there with me is literally right beside me. That's what that translates literally to. Right beside me. It means I'm here and evil is glued to my side. It means that it's never far away. It's like that puppy dog that follows you around the park. It's constantly in your life. And then he uses a military term to describe the, str the struggle waging war, making me a prisoner. The Greek word for waging war means to line up the troops and go out on a military campaign. Military campaign. It means to line up the troops and wage war. Basically, what is Paul is saying here is that the indwelling sin isn't just with you, but it is constantly lining up to take you out. Sin is constantly trying to take you out. Evil's not only with us, but waging war inside of us all the time. So that leads me to say this. You're going to struggle with sin as long as you're in this body. There's no amount of going to church that can change that fact. There's no miracle cure. There's no three-step process that will save you and free you from this sin forever. But when we read Romans 7, we see a godly man admitting the truth about the struggle within his own soul. See, if Paul struggled, it will probably happen to me and you. And So we're going to struggle. See, the real battles aren't the ones on the outside, but the ones on the inside. 
It's the struggle that goes on in your mind and heart between the pool of the flesh and the pool of the Holy Spirit. See, and this isn't something that just happens person to person, but it's something that we struggle with even as a church. See, the battle goes on every Sunday morning. We're a pretty good-looking congregation. I would say that, right? Pat yourself on the back for being pretty. We look nice in church. We're cleaned up. We're dressed up. But behind every smiling face is a story of struggle, heartache, despair, defeat, victory, cowardice, bravery, fear, courage, all mixed up together. We're kind of a hot mess. And, and though we look very good when we come to church, in truth, if we could see our souls, it would be much more appropriate to picture us as a group of soldiers, wandering, staggering out of the jungle of Guadalcanal. See, that's what life is like. Sometimes some of us barely make it to church because it's been a hard week. Spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally, you are absolutely exhausted. And for some of you, that's you in this room right now. It was a fight just to come into these doors. Well, I want to tell you something. That's okay. That is okay. See, it's a struggle to come to church and admit the truth. We'd all rather think, I look good, you look good. You don't have any problems, I don't have any problems. Because then we can just pass by and never have any real contact, relationship, honesty. It's hard to come into a place and say, there's a battle inside of me. I am really struggling and I can barely make it. I can barely make it. See, when people come to me and say, dude, I'm struggling so much, I'm encouraged to tell them, listen, go to Romans 7 because you're in good company. If you are struggling, that means you're in it, man. That means you're living your life as a Christian because sin is waging war against you because you are doing work for the kingdom. It's a good thing. Keep fighting. Keep fighting. That leads me to say something else, too. Most of us are going to struggle with some sins for many years. We're going to win some battles, and through Jesus Christ, we're going to win a lot of battles. We're going to know significant amount of victory. I don't want you to be misled tonight that you think that all these battles we're just going to consistently lose. There's an end to this battle, to this war. And if you're a Christian, the end is already decided. We have victory. We have victory, and that is something that we can walk in every single day. But until our time here is up on earth, we have to fight. And it is a consistent battle until the war is up and the battle is won. And the battle is won. See, until then, we can walk in significant victory, though. Even the best saints of God are going to struggle. That's how you see pastors who fall. That's how you see godly men and women fall into adultery. Leaders of the church, Bible study leaders, people you know and respect fall into bitterness and to gossip and to greed. Relationships that just fall apart. It's because of this sin struggle, and it's because people have given up on the battle. You see, God has enabled us to win these battles. But people have given up on it. How else can you explain Christian leaders and Sunday school teachers who admit heinous sins? And how do you explain people of God who end up in jail? The only way we know how to explain this is the reality of indwelling sin and the struggle that we all face. And so some of you guys are sitting there going, Man, Blake, thank you for telling me what I already know. I suck. That's great. I can go home now and feel really bad about myself. Thank you. <laughs> That's not the point of this message. Um, so I want to give you a few different real truths here um, to help us help us get through this. You know, what, what can we do to help us with this struggle with sin? I think that there are three specific things that this passage tells us. The first one is this, honesty. In verse 24, he says, what a wretched man I am. You see, that's a Christian man talking. What a wretched man I am. He knew apart from Jesus Christ and God, he was a horrible person. 
what a wretched man I am. You know, I've said this to people before. We've come to know the truth, and the truth truly does set us free, but first it's probably going to hurt you. Think about that for a second. We come to know the truth, and the truth will set you free, but it's probably going to hurt you first. And the reason we don't see Christian growth in the church, the reason we don't see people really moving is because they hear it intellectually. They hear what God is telling them intellectually, but they never let it get close enough to hurt them. Maybe that's you. You never let it get close enough to hurt you, to refine you, to help you start the process of overcoming this sin and this battle. See, we have to start with honesty. We have to start with honesty. The second step is humility. Humility. He says in 24b, who will rescue me from this body of death? See, the difference here between honesty and humility is that honesty says I'm a wretched man. Humility says I can't save myself. I can't save myself. So many of us, and I'm guilty of this, we, we commit to something. You know, maybe it's a struggle with an addiction, or maybe it's a struggle with a relationship. And, you know, uh, maybe, I'll use this example, maybe you struggle with a pornography addiction. And so you say to yourself one day, all right, I'm quitting. I'm not doing it. I'm going to overcome this problem in my life. I'm going to close the computer. I'm going to walk away from it. So many times you see that story over and over and over again because you get maybe three days in, four days in, two weeks in, and you fail. And you fail over and over and over again, and it's frustrating, and it's heartbreaking. But it's, it's coming to a point where you say, you know what, I can't save myself from this problem. I can't do this on my own. And so you start setting up accountability in your life, and you start allowing God to change your heart, and you fully surrender yourself. See, that's my third step, I think, in understanding how to fight this sin struggle is complete dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. See, this text can be kind of harsh and, and kind of hard because it's, it's harsh reality, but there's a wonderful verse in this scripture, and it's the very last verse that says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, that's the answer to everything he's just said about his struggle with sin. Thank you, God, through Christ Jesus our Lord. See, we're going to discover through the text in chapter 8 that there's provision for victory. We're going to discover that there's provision for walking in the Spirit. There's provision for overcoming the sin struggle. It's right there. And if I can say something that speaks truth, I think, into this message is this. It's not a formula. It's a person. It's not a formula. It's a person. When looking at how to overcome the sin struggle, it's not something on the outside. It's not a decision or a step study. It's a moment-by-moment dependent dependence on Jesus Christ, realizing that his power is enough, that his power is enough. You see, you don't have to be defeated, although sometimes you will be. You don't have to stay in the muck and mire, although that might be where you're at right now. See, through complete dependence on Jesus Christ, there's a possibility of significant victory in your life, of significant victory in your life. And I want you to know that you guys aren't alone in this struggle with sin. We see it in godly characters. We see it in peers. We see it in people we respect. Uh, we see it so much so that there is a popular phrase, a hashtag, if you're on Twitter, social media. How many of you guys have seen the hashtag or heard the expression, the struggle is real? Just pop up your hand. Yeah, mostly the younger people. Um, <laughs> but it's this new thing, this new idea, you know, Monday, hashtag, the struggle is real. And there's some real truth in this idea, in this phrase, that the struggle is real. And so I want to share with you three stories about people who would probably say, hashtag the struggle is real. And maybe you can relate to one of these people. 
The first person is this guy who is the CEO of a major company. A major company. He is excellent at his job, but he is horrible as a human being. He is willing to do anything to achieve his goals and get his name on the door. Even if it means hurting the little people. Even if it means degrading people. Even if it means cutting down people and their character and who they are. He's willing to do anything to be on the top. He doesn't really have any kind of relationships with people because he is so sold out and focused on his job. And so he doesn't have time for family. He doesn't have time for intimacy or anything else. And so he lives a very empty life, a very broken life, a life of hurt, a life of hurting other people because of this emptiness. But then there's a change. Something shifts. This guy quits his million-dollar job, and he starts giving money to charity. He starts serving the people that he once made fun of. And they're going, dude, what are you doing? Like, you're the same guy that spit on me. You're the reason that I lost my job and everything. And people don't like him at first. And he says, listen, let me prove myself to you with the way I love you. Let me serve you. Let me give you my things. Let me speak truth into your life. Let me redeem the story that you know about me. Let me encourage you. Let me build church with you. Maybe you relate to that story of Saul becoming Paul. There's another story that you might be able to relate to of a woman who was struggling in her marriage. She stayed at home a whole lot, and her husband was away, and she felt really lonely. She was reaching that point in her life where she was really struggling with um, insecurity issues and feeling pretty and good enough. And there was a, ch a time in her life when a man happened to show her some attention. But unfortunately, this guy wasn't her husband. And he made her feel a special way inside and, and alive in a way that she had not felt in a really long time. And, and so she gave in in a moment of weakness. And she invited him into her bedroom. Well, unfortunately, she lived in a neighborhood with really, really nosy neighbors. Anybody live in a, an HOA? It's kind of one of those situations. And one of the soccer moms came in and, and saw what she was doing. Immediately, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter were lit, lighting up, calling this woman a skank, and you won't believe what, what this mom just did, and you won't believe how awful of a person she is. And then she started getting it at the games and out in public, people calling her out, degrading her, throwing shade, throwing these stones at her with their words, trying to just tear her down as a person and a human being. But then you see a plot twist, a change a man steps onto the scene and says, listen, that person you're making fun of, you're a whole lot like her. Do you remember that one time when you did the exact same thing? Or how about you look at that speck in your eye? And how about you look at your own heart and your own life? And eventually the Facebook statuses came down and the damage was still there. The pain, the hurt was still there. But this woman, for the first time in her life, felt true hope, a chance for redemption, a chance for a new life. And that guy said, listen, you're forgiven. Go and live your new life. Sin no more. Maybe you can relate to the adulterer. The last story I want to tell you is of a man who never really had an appreciation for things. And so he lived his life as a womanizer, going from girl to girl to girl, stealing pieces of their heart, things that didn't belong to him. Taking away uh, their purity and not caring about their, their hearts or their emotions. Not only did he just take pieces of them, but he had little, um, little remorse or little integrity. And so because of that, he would manipulate situations. He would never work for anything. And he was a person who, when people looked at him, they said, you're pathetic. 
You were absolutely pathetic. And he had reached the last days of his life. And people who were around him didn't want to be by him because they knew that he was an awful person. And he started looking around the room at the people who were with him in his final hours. And he saw a guy who was in a similar situation as him, but he was confused because when he looked in his eyes, he saw righteousness, and he saw goodness, and he saw something different. And he said, listen, man, I have lived my life so broken, so messy, so empty, so filled with empty stuff that doesn't really matter. I want to look like you. I know you're different than me. I don't know what it is, but I know you're different than me. I recognize it. How do I do it? And the guy looks over and says, I'll see you again. You get to walk like me someday. You get to be like me soon. Maybe you relate to the man on the cross, the thief, who looked at Jesus and asked for forgiveness in his final hours. And Jesus said, I will see you, my son in paradise. 